Our first message this afternoon is from Mr. Sean Witt. It is entitled, A Call to Purity. Sean? Good afternoon, everyone. Beautiful Sabbath day out there today. You can ask for a beautiful, more beautiful day. <clears throat> so I've noticed the theme in the messages after the, over the past few weeks. Uh, Steve gave a message about Lot, um, Abram's nephew in Sodom. And then there was a message given by Mark McGarvey regarding being a light in today's world. And then the same day when we had the British invasion, um, <laughs> Matt gave a message on Isaiah's message. And, you know, all these messages had a similar theme that I noticed, and it's something I've been thinking about. I felt um, that we should continue to pursue uh, this type of message. So I've noticed, it seems everywhere you turn, you turn the TV on now and you hear about people's indiscretions being exposed. And like was mentioned before in the other messages, uh, you're hearing about people being accused of inappropriate things and being fired from their jobs and such, and it's been going on for a while. And <clears throat> even locally, I heard uh, the Bixby High School football team was accused of something inappropriate they have done recently. So it seems like wherever you go, you're hearing about more inappropriate things going on in the world. And we know that we are called to be different. We're called to be not a part of this world. We're called to have purity. And today I'd like to talk about a few steps I have to try to avoid falling into the pitfalls of following into the example of this world and not having purity. So anyway, <clears throat> if you go to dictionary.com, the I want to say, let's see, if you go to dictionary.com, the definition of the word purity, which I received here, is a condition of being pure. Freedom from adulterating matter, cleanness or clearness, freedom from evil or sin, freedom from corrupting elements, set of language, style, etc. Freedom from mixture, from white, you know, color saturation. And purity seems to be a thing of the past. And I want to focus on purity, the definition of freedom from adulterating matter. There's been a lot of events in our country over the past 20 years or so that has further eroded the moral fabric of our country. Some of the things I like to discuss just short are like Roe versus Wade decision is one of the things that has helped erode the moral fabric of our country. Inappropriate movies coming out of Hollywood, it seems like they want to try to get a PG-13 rating, so they'll throw nudity in there and inappropriate language. So it seems like that's the, it's very hard to find a PG rated movie nowadays. It seems like it's PG-13 or, <clears throat> or R ratings. Uh, of course, President Clinton's indiscretions. About 20 years ago, he <clears throat> redefined um, 
a new definition of what really sex is. I guess my point is is that he tried to say that it wasn't really, and it's clear, it's puts, um, it's confused the lines. It's made things more, um, why we have a situation what we have going on in society now because of stuff like that. And I was walking through the grocery store the other day and I saw a Time Magazine cover. They do like special Time Magazine specials. And on this particular one I saw, it was dedicated to Hugh Hefner. And I thought, man, what's our world coming to? It's, we're circling the drain for sure, the way things are going. So these are the times we're living in. And these things haven't happened overnight. It's taken time. Slowly, each year that goes by, we become a little bit worse and worse in what we tolerate in this world and how things are going. So what does God say about freedom from adulterating matter? Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he commits sexual immorality, sins against his own body. Or do you know that your own body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> which is in you? from whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which, is, uh, which are God's. We don't have the authority. <coughs> Excuse me a second. I need some water. We do not have the authority to be a part of what is out there um, to look at inappropriate things. We were bought with a price, and we need to have a higher standard, God's standard. Christ died for us to make it possible for us to have purity. So we were bought with a price. We don't own ourselves. Christ owns us. We don't have the authority to be looking at these type of things and being around inappropriate material. Please turn with me to Matthew 5, verses 27 to 28. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to have lust for her already has committed adultery with her in his heart. We need to have self-control in all things. Just because we're surrounded by sin, it doesn't give us a, a pass to do whatever we want to do. We need to have control of our surroundings at all times. You know, I've talked with returned soldiers that have come back from war, and the common thing that I hear from them is to be alert and on guard at all times in their surroundings. We need to be on high alert as well, because we're in a battle. We're in a battle all the time, and everywhere we go, we're going to be subjected to this type of material, whether it be the newsstands, movies, wherever we're at, billboards. We've got to be really careful and guard our minds. And the first point of guarding your mind is to guard your eyes. Your eyes are the first thing. That's where the input comes in, is through your eyes. Job recognized this, and he followed God's higher standard. We have a duty, just as Job has shown to us, to have a higher standard as well to guard our minds. We need to control what goes into our minds. So first of all, to protect our eyes, you put sunglasses on, right, to protect your eyes from the sun? Well, we need to protect our eyes from inappropriate content coming in as well. I mean, we've got to make sure that our minds are protected. 
if you see something inappropriate, you know, even if it's unintentionally, don't just stare at it and take a second glance. You need to train your eyes to divert away from it. It's a discipline and it's self-control. Turn with me, please, to Job chapter 31, verses 1 through 5. We'll hear what Job has to say about it. I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? For what is the allotment of God from above and the inheritance of the Almighty from on high? It is not destruction for the wicked and disaster for the workers of iniquity. Does he not see my ways and count my steps? So the first step in controlling your mind is to make sure you control your eyes. And like I was saying, guard your eyes and make sure that wherever you're going, you're very careful. Turn with me now to Genesis 19, verses 17. So it came to pass when they had brought them out that he said, escape for your life. And this is them coming out of Sodom. God's talk, talking about, they're talking about how they came out of Sodom. A lot in his two dollars. Escape for your life. Do not look behind you nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains lest you be destroyed. And let's go a little bit further into verse 24 through 31. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all of the plain and its inhabitants in the city and what grew on the ground. But then it says that Lot's wife looked back. And when she looked back, she became a pillar of salt. I'm not saying that you're going to turn into a pillar of salt. If you're walking through the grocery store line and you happen to glance at a magazine and you look back at it again, take a second look. What I'm trying to say, I'm just giving you an example, is how serious God is about his instructions. Probably the reason why God told them not to look back is he wanted to see what was in their hearts. You want to see what is going on in here. God hates sin. He wants nothing to do with it. It separates us from him. We have to ask ourselves, why are we taking a second look? What is in our hearts? Are we allowing God into our hearts? Turn with me now to Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruits of his doing. We have to make continual progress. We have to be showing that we're, make, we're developing fruit, putting down the old man, asking God for his help. He's the only one that can change us. We can't change ourselves. It's God working through us that makes those changes within us. To further expand upon this, let's go to Psalms 139, where David talks about this, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, know my heart, try me, and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. Ask God to search your heart, to help us to see what we may not see. We may not see what's going on in our heart, because maybe we've got walls around our heart because of the separation, when those walls build around, it's difficult to let anything penetrate in. So we need to be asking God to help us to see what we don't see. We may not even recognize we have a problem. Turn with me now to Matthew 18, verses 8 and 9. 
If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maintain rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast in hell fire than to be cast into hell fire. The previous verse says we are tempted in different ways. We all have our challenges in life that God allows us to happen to us. If you're an alcoholic, you're not going to be going into the bar sitting around. That would be really stupid. And if you have an eating problem, if you have a hard time staying uh, in control of your, what you eat, you don't want to be going to a buffet either. Well, the same, the same difference is with your eyes. If you have a problem with your eyes, take precautions. Stay away from triggers that can cause you to have difficulties. Don't be watching inappropriate movies. If you know there's something in there that causes you a problem, don't turn it on. And don't be channel surfing because who knows what you're going to come across if you have a problem with that. Uh, have the clicker nearby so if something inappropriate comes on, change the channel. Because, you know, even with your kids, there's all kinds of inappropriate commercials, lots of garbage out there now. So it's wise to take precautions and be in control at all times. Same goes with smartphones and computers, all of these things. If you have an issue, get software, things to help you, to protect you. Set parameters. Everyone knows their triggers. You can recognize them, and you can take evasive maneuvers to make sure that you're safe. A great source that we use at our house is PluggedIn.com. It works really well. If you have a movie or something you want to watch, go to PluggedIn.com, look it up. It'll tell you the content and everything. If you want to know about the movie, it'll, there's spoilers there. So, but it'll have subcategories of what's in those movies and shows, and it'll break it down for you to let you know if it's something worth watching or not. And you can know where to fast forward through if you don't want to be seeing garbage like that, which you don't want to see. If your children shouldn't be watching it, you shouldn't be watching it either. Another great website is called protectyoungminds.com. I really recommend this site for children. And I'd write it down. It's protectyoungminds.com. It's an excellent source, tons of information to protect your children from being online and wherever they may be to help teach them if they see something inappropriate to immediately divert their eyes and recognize what it is. Because it's not when it's possibly going to happen. It's when it's going to happen. Because it's prevalent. It's everywhere. Your kids are going to come across this stuff eventually. And they need to know how to protect themselves. God does not tempt us. But he allows these challenges in our life to help us to overcome. That way we know that it's him working through us that makes these changes within us. We can't do these things on our own. It's God's glory that makes the changes within us. So we may have some challenges in life that we work with, but it's God ultimately that helps us to get through them. Turn with me now to 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity into the obedience of God. So we need to train our minds to bring these things into captivity when a thought comes in our head that's inappropriate of something we might have seen in a movie or something at some time. We need to block that out, uh, whatever it takes to let that go. Turn with me now to Matthew 6, verses 13. 
Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from all, from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. God's not the one that leads us into temptation, but he allows it sometimes to. You know, we're in Satan's world, and we need to just make sure that we're praying to him and asking him for his help at all times. Turns me now to James 1, verses 14. And this will further expand upon it. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. That's where the problem lies, is when we're not staying closely connected with God. We are all in a battle. We need to recognize our weaknesses. Satan knows our every weakness and will try his best to attack us in different ways. We must be on guard and a step ahead of him at all times. We can't walk through this life being complacent. We have to draw closer to God. We have to take precautions seriously. It's a daily battle. But God will help. He'll fight for us. He will help us. But it is a battle that we have to be in. And we'll talk more about that as we keep going through. Let's go to 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 10. Be sober, be vigilant, because our adversary, the devil, walks like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. We're not the only ones that are going through this. But... May the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Remember, Satan has no power over us that God doesn't allow. Satan is mighty, but God is the almighty. There is nothing that we cannot do without his help. Satan wants us to think we're stuck and unworthy and unforgiven. This simply is untrue. Satan is the accuser, the father of lies. Do not buy into them. There's nothing we cannot overcome with God's help. Read the story of Gideon's army. You'll notice that God sent home the first 20,000 because they were fearful. God eventually whittled it down to 300 to deliberately show his glory. They were up against and innumerable odds, but they prevailed. And it was to show that it was God that made this happen. To overcome, we must be close to God. And how can we do that? Well, let's turn to Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. We'll see how we can do this. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up your whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore having girded your waist with with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the eagle, evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, 
praying always with all prayer and supplication, and the Spirit being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me that utters may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. This is the first thing we should do every single day is make sure we have our armor on without fail. When I notice I don't do this in the mornings, I have a different day. It's not the same. We have to be intentional about it. I want to share with you a story of a man in the Bible who showed a right example of purity. You've heard the story of David and Goliath, but today I'd like to read about David versus Uriah. And I'm going to read from a book that I recommend as well. It's called Every Man's Battle. It's written by uh, Stephen Arterburn and Fred Stoker. And in here is a section that talks about Uriah and how he was a man of purity. And it's entitled, this part is, A Man with Complete Faithfulness. We want to direct your attention now to a man in the Bible who liked his place and loved God's purposes. All men should be as faithful as he was, cherishing both the kings and their wives. This man's name is Uriah. In 1 Chronicles 11, we see Uriah listed as one of David's mighty men, the man who gave his kinship support to extend it over the whole land as the Lord had promised. Uriah was clearly consumed with the purposes of his king. He was also consumed with the purposes of God. Uriah was by David's side in the caves when Saul hounded their heels. He cried of David as their homes burned in Ziglang. He cheered himself hoarse as David's coronation, at David's coronation, and he fiercely fought to extend David's kingdom over the whole land, swearing his life to the purposes of God. Uriah stood in harm's way for David's throne. Sound familiar? You swore your life to someone, didn't you? You swore before your family and friends to honor and cherish your wife. Abandoning all others, you promised she would have more from marriage than she would have from a single woman. You are consumed by this commitment, consumed enough to live faithfully and to cherish completely, consumed enough to stand in harm's way and to eat gravel upon God's purposes. Your promises are finally established in your land. Uriah was that consumed. His faithfulness was complete, but alas, David's faithfulness was not. He went to bed with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, and when she became pregnant, he had a mess on his hands. As always, Uriah was fighting David's battles. Bathsheba's pregnancy could, not, could mean only one thing. David, not Uriah, was the father. David addressed the situation, fabricating a rouge. He ordered Uriah back from the front lines. David's plan was to set Uriah quickly home to a warm, cuddly night with Bathsheba, if David moved quickly enough, people would naturally assume the unborn child is Uriah's. Tragically, Uriah's faithfulness to the king was so complete that David's plan didn't work. David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah left the place, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace, and with the 
master's servants and did not go down to the house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink, with, lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David's intention was to have him eat and drink with him. And David made him drunk. But in the evening Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among the master's servants and didn't go home. That's in 2 Samuel 11, verses 8 through 13. Look at Uriah. He was consumed by the purposes of God that he refused to go to his house, even to wash his feet. His faithfulness was so strong that even when drunk, he didn't waver from his commitment and zeal. His purity of soul was so great that no treacherous trick formed against him. None of these things could stand. God wouldn't allow David's simple deception to cover his great sin against God and against God's choice servant, Uriah. God loved Uriah, and God loved Uriah's love for Bathsheba. Uriah knew his place. He was satisfied to be part of God's purposes to fill his role. To be like Uriah, we must know our place and be content with it. What does it mean to cherish? We didn't look further into Uriah's example because his cherished heart toward Bathsheba was transforming. After David arranged for Uriah to be killed in battle, God sent his prophet Nathan to confront David with his sin. He used a word picture story that revealed Uriah's cherishing, loving heart toward Bathsheba. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town. One was rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except for one ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and he grew it up with him and his children. He shared his food, drank from its cup, and even slept in its arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the poor man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare the meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took from the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. The rich man in the story presented, represented David, who saw Bathsheba only as someone he could devour to satisfy his sexual longings. But Uriah, the poor man, saw the lamb as the joy of his life. To pet, to cherish, to sleep in his arms. Uriah had only one wife. A faithful man like him could on, only one. His ewe lamb, Bathsheba, bounced and pranced and frolicked and laughed with him, bringing him great joy. And I turn ahead to this next part. Remember, the Bible says that God loved us while we were yet sinners. Clearly loving the unloving is a foundation of God's character, and cherishing the unloving is his, its bedrock. Since Christ died for the church, the unloving, and since our marriages should parallel Christ's relationship to the church, we have to excuse when we don't, we have no excuse when it comes to not cherishing our wives. God loved us before we were worthy we can do nothing less for our wives. 
You know, David repented and ultimately became a man of God's own heart. We need to live a life of purity. We cannot follow the example um, that Satan's world is showing. And we need to be like Uriah in the way that he was faithful in all ways. You know, David tried to get him to stumble up, and he didn't. He followed through with what he believed to be right. He didn't think it was right to, to come back and, you know, be with his wife when he was supposed to be out fighting with his uh, rest of the army and uh, taking care of the king as well and following God's will. In conclusion, I'd like to go to uh, two final scriptures. Before I do that, we, you know, we need to just follow the example that uh, we had set. You know, David made huge mistakes, but he repented and became a man after God's own heart, like I said. So even when you make mistakes and you fall short, God will lift us up and he'll carry us through and he'll help us. So now we're at Matthew verses, chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now go with me to 1 John 3, verses 2 through 3, and we'll wrap it up with this final verse. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and everyone who has hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure.